0: Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and go to 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1 as we dive straight into the Word of God. One of my, I think, my most frustrating things a person can ever experience when they sit down to watch a movie is to have absolutely no idea who in the world anybody is or what's going on especially if you enter into the middle of the story. If you just happen to wander into somebody's house and they're watching something on TV. You sit down and you pick up in the middle of the story. You're missing a ton of information. And imagine with me, if you picked up in the middle of the story and you did not know who the players in the story were. You didn't know who the actors were. You didn't know what the plot line was. And many people approach the Bible and they have no idea who the actors are, the plot line, or the play. The, the context of the story. And and so we end up taking tiny little pieces of it and we lift them out and we use those things to apply to our lives. And hopefully we gain some truth from that. There are some players in the story that I think we've neglected. One of the biggest players we have is the new covenant. It's the stage. It's the stage that the apostle Paul is trying his best to get everybody onto and engaged in and to convince them that this is the stage we live in now. There's an old stage, an old story called the Old Covenant. This is where people are coming from. And for Paul, he recognizes that Christ has changed everything. You don't just get to add the New Covenant, or as Don and I have called it the Christic Covenant. You don't just get to add that to what you do. Uh, You can't just come in and have your Old Covenant life and then add Jesus into it. When we did the study, when you and I did the study in Hebrews, it was one of the most glaring realities of it. Is that Paul is essentially saying, or the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, I think it's Apollos, says, if you guys keep doing this, you're actually testifying to the world that Christ does not have the power alone to save you. So, if you actually want to tell everybody that Jesus is powerful enough to save you single handedly, I got a challenge for you. This is the entirety of Hebrews, and he makes he makes a case for this. Stop doing the old covenant stuff. Stop sacrificing. Stop going and feasting. Stop the rituals. Shut it all down. And by that, you will testify to your entire household that you're putting 100% of your faith in Christ alone, right? That's the entirety of why Paul dies. Paul isn't going to get killed eventually. None of the, 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 these guys aren't going to get killed because they're preaching about Jesus, we preach about Jesus all day long, you know, there'll be some persecution, but you're probably not going to get stoned or killed or whatever, unless you're in Iraq, right? We have missionaries to Iraq here tonight. So Paul is going to get killed because he's taking people off of a stage that has been supported for 1300 years, not just by the command of God that built this thing, but by the building up of a religious system that is pushing money into this. I mean, this is finance and and politics involved in here. And what Paul is saying to these guys is you shut down this old system once and for all, and you step into a new stage. And this new stage is Jesus Christ, Christ alone. He saves you single-handedly, and now he has done the work for you. So now you go out and tell the good news to everybody else. They can get off the old stage too and jump on the new one. So. You understand, the people who are propping up the old stage, they want Paul dead. Jesus was a threat to the old stage, so is Paul. To this day, 2,000 years after the cross, we still have people who live according to a law-based system to some extent in their mind. And the Bible says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Everything attached to the old stage system that was a curse is done. It's over. Fortunately, nothing in the Bible says that he redeemed us from the blessings of the law. The blessings that used to come by effort now come simply by grace because of what Christ has done. He fulfilled everything necessary in order for all of the blessings that were in the law on the old stage that we used to have to work for to now become ours purely because of him alone. That's why the new stage is so amazing. You can't bring your ego onto the new stage. It's the death of ego to step into the new covenant. Why? Because, Because you're not working for credit anymore. Right. So having said all that, we're going to read a little bit of a play here. And I don't want to show you who the characters are in the play and why it's such a big deal. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and uh, put put this verses, verse in front of your eyes. Chapter 11, verse 1. I'm going to read down just a few verses down here. And um, I want to talk to you a little bit about it, and then open it up and see so what kind of discussion we have here among the group. Second Corinthians chapter eleven, starting in verse one, Paul writes. He says, "I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me." So he's going to give an analogy now. He says, "Here I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed to you you to one husband." so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, or the simplicity and purity of Christ himself. Okay, that's the deal here. Says says, uh, verse 4, If one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. In other words, these guys are used to hearing something that carries a holdover from the old stage, and they know how to discern what's New Covenant and Old Covenant. He says, I consider myself, verse 5, not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even I'm unskilled in speech, yet not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. So let's just stop there for a second. I want to back up to the analogy that he's going to use here, where he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband to Christ that I might present you as a pure virgin, but I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived thee, by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of Christ, Christ alone. Okay. So Let me kind of show you the play here. I look at this now from a new covenant perspective, and I've never done this before, actually, just this week, to look at this section of scripture and go, God, show me something of a new covenant perspective that I've never seen before. So the analogy here is the garden. You have Adam and Eve and the serpent and the the garden. As far as Paul is saying here, you could say that the garden that he's speaking of is the new covenant. The stage is the new covenant. The garden is the new covenant. That's what the play is here. Adam is Christ. Eve is us, the church. The serpent's still the serpent and doing what the serpent does. So the question I would have is, and I think a lot of people when they read this scripture, they go, oh, what does it mean to be led astray from the simplicity that is in Christ? So let's go back to the Garden of Eden story. And let's say the new covenant now, we're back in the garden. So in the garden, Adam and Eve were given everything that they needed. They didn't have to work for a single thing, right? It was just, it was, it was there. And they were simply there to steward what they'd been given by grace. And then one day here comes a serpent and the serpent comes to Eve and, and says to Eve, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. Okay, so, and we've talked a lot about that in in this class, but I want to just focus on this knowledge of good and evil part. The eating of the tree didn't create evil. It only revealed something that we were never actually meant to be enamored with or threatened by. What do I mean by that? Prior to the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there is no such thing as preference ever on display. We could call it judgment, but let's just call it something that's a little more familiar to us and doesn't seem so threatening. Preference. I prefer this over this. I exalt exalt this and demote that. Prior to the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you never see that. You never see it demonstrated. What appears is everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. I mean, they just look around at the diversity of the world all around them, and all they can see is the glory and the beauty of everything that's around them. There's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no labor, and there's no toil they're living a new covenant existence. It the new covenant was not new when Christ it, he restored us back to what his intention always was for us is to have an unhindered unbroken communion and relationship with him this union this communion and union place where he is our source and our provider. He's always been Jehovah Jireh. He didn't start being that when the new covenant you know got into place. He's always been. He's always been all those things to us. But what he is to us, or was to us, it's almost like when we stepped into the garden, we got put into the garden. We were living a a, a, what we would call a new covenant world, but it was a Christic covenant world. I mean, they were essentially in that place of surrounded by the life of of God, essentially communing with Him who is from the beginning, which is is Christ. So, so you have a new covenant existence, and the thing that we go blind to. Is we leave behind the simplicity of that world to eat of the tree of the knowledge, the revelation of good and evil. In other words, now I become the determining factor in in what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. I, I don't think that is ever a skill that we were ever meant to develop. That might seem kind of controversial to say, but I I don't think it was ever a skill that we were actually ever meant to, to hone. The Bible does talk about having our senses exercised to discern both good and evil, because under the fruit of the fall, we became really good at figuring out what was evil. As a matter of fact, we become obsessed with it. Think about it like this. We it's not that we didn't know that things were good. Everything was beautiful prior to the fall. Everything. After the fall, now. We start becoming inspectors of, and we can actually create, we can create scenarios where pain happens, where suffering happens. There's a whole new world now that is open to us that we never, we never even would have been knowing or threatened by before. Why? Because we were so focused in on him.
1: It's not that the, once we get our eyes off of him, everything goes wrong. That's the deal. And in the garden,
0: all we were doing was spending time with, beholding him, moving by his his heartbeat, enamored with just the beholding of him. And then suddenly, we become enamored, not with good, but with evil. There's evil in the world. We must explore this now. So I think of Romans 16, 19. Be excellent in what is good. Be innocent of evil. And in that place, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Satan is crushed under your feet when you find yourself being more enamored with good. And there is no good apart from God. So our focus in on him ultimately is what we's talking about here. There's a communion in beholding him that becomes uh, 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 the source of our life, our very life. So we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We introduce preference into the world. Preference immediately. Adam and Eve turn, and they judge themselves. And, well, they don't like that at all. That doesn't feel good. And so they judge each other. And in that judgment, they produce something that nobody had ever felt before, which is guilt and shame. More judgment, more guilt, more shame. More judgment, more guilt, more shame. Find yourself, think about it like this. Find yourself today in a room with a whole bunch of people and somebody brings up an issue of morality. What do people do? they turn to the christian to find out what the christian thinks because every christian has an opinion on this because what what's happened we have become we have become the determining judging factor on what is right and wrong in this world and and not not so much pointing people to jesus and connecting them to his heart but connecting them to our opinion even if our opinion's right it falls short of pointing people to jesus and so many times we require people to agree with our opinion of what is right and wrong before we bring them to jesus that's where we get hung up on like on on missing the point of the gospel you know we bring people in their mess to jesus and what does he do he turns them into his ministry team i mean he 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 empowers them he sends them out to do incredible things he tells them they are who they don't believe they are Because all they've been doing their entire life is living under the fruit of the fall, judging themselves, judging everybody else around them, and learning to do their best to try to somehow live as free from judgment as possible. And this is the world that we live in. And that is that we try to figure out how we can behave in the culture we are in so we can live as free from judgment as possible. And if I can live free from the judgment of people around me, then I must be therefore holy. And now we determine who's holy and who's not. That's the way we do it we set conditions on it and the reality is none of us are important to set those conditions it's not our
1: job description ever stop <laughs> as much as we want to it's not our job description
0: right so the the garden here in this analogy we're just going to say the garden is the new covenant so paul's saying here's this beautiful beautiful world where god comes in and he feeds you he's your source he's your supply Now what happens? We eat of the fruit of the fall, and the first thing that happens is now we have to work for what we used to be given by grace. We have to work for it. And in working for it, what comes up? It's not always fruit. There's fruit in the work, but there's also thorns and thistles. You get wheat, you get tares, you get fruit, you get thorns and thistles. You're going to get them both. And when in the New Testament, when people start, you know, kind of freaking out to Jesus about who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad, what's right, what's wrong, what's what, and Jesus goes, hey, see that field, wheat and tares, let them grow up together. The wheat and the tares analogy is a fascinating part. Most fascinating to me is the part where Jesus says, let them grow up together. Why? Because there will come a harvest time one day where the tares are removed and the wheat remains, but he's the one that's actually going to do the dividing. Now, we think, well, that's all about people. Prior to the cross, that's the best analogy you'd get. But then Paul, when he starts talking about this, he says, we are actually God's field. In other words, not the wheat and the tares that are, you're a wheat, you're a tare, you're a wheat, you're a tare. No, we
1: are God's field. And within us, grow up wheat and tares. And the
0: most uncomfortable part of the wheat and tares analogy is where Jesus says, let them grow together.
1: Let them. Why? <laughs> I think it's to kill our ego. I mean, I mean, you know, some of us
0: are weedier than others, right? So, and some of us are a little, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so let them grow up together. Why? Because ultimately we are God's field. And then you get Jesus telling stories like this. There was a guy who knew about a field and there was a treasure in a field. And so he sold everything he had so he could buy the entire field just to get the treasure that was in it. And I look at the field of a person's life, and maybe all I can see is dirt where God sees treasure, right? In the new covenant, we get the, the ability to get X ray vision to see beyond the dirt and the soil and to see the treasure that God has hidden within people. That's the deal. And there are people, religion will say, pick up a clot of dirt and say, Do you see how horrible and messed up this is? Look at the tares here. Yeah, I know there's some wheat, but there's a lot of tares in this field and will disqualify the field altogether. But God in Christ gives the analogy I will spend my blood to buy a field that you would reject because I know what I've hidden in it. That's the gospel. The power of the gospel is that God can see the treasure beneath all the wheat and all the tares and all the dirt. And so from a new covenant perspective, when we look at people's lives, the ability to see that is absolutely priceless. I mean, to see, to look and to see a person's life where they're standing right now, but to see who they can be. And I think Jesus did this. I think this is why the disciples that he chose are the disciples that he chose. And so we come to the table of communion. It's always been a a theme for us now for the past few weeks. We have this table of communion, and Jesus is there, and he's hanging out with the disciples. Judas is there, Mm -hmm. right? Judas, who's who's like plotting in the back of his mind to betray Jesus. Jesus is not going to kick Judas out of the meeting. He basically gives him the freedom to leave. In other words, do what you got to do, man. Like, you can leave the service at any time. But he's still invited to the table. Wet feet.
1: It, <laughs>
0: right. It's So you have Peter sitting there going, everybody else going to deny you, but I will not. Jesus absolutely knows this guy's heart. Like, you know what? You're at the table, too. These, all these people are at the table of communion. What's the table? The table is the garden. The table is the new covenant. The table, it's where it's introduced. This is my blood. This is my body. This is the new covenant. You are all welcome at the table. The Judases, the Peters, and the rest of you who are all confused and cowardly, no idea what's going on. You're all invited. You're all here at the table with me, and this is the way I want it. And that's what he does. It brings us to all to the table. Somebody asked me the question: Is Judas in hell or is Judas in heaven? I'm going to give you a controversial opinion. I think Judas is with Jesus.
1: I can tell you biblically why I think that. A couple of things: Judas repented badly.
0: (laughs) Right? I mean, he didn't go to Jesus. Why didn't he go to Jesus? I betrayed an innocent man. He realizes innocent blood's on my hands. He might be the first person to actually come to the awareness of what he's, the gravity of what he's actually just done here. I betrayed innocent blood. He takes the money that he got, the entire motivation for his betrayal, he throws it back into the religious leaders. And he he turns, and instead of going to Jesus, he goes and ends his life. Why? Because to betray innocent blood, he doesn't feel like he's worth living doesn't feel like another moment's worth living. So we could say, well, Judas ended his life, and therefore, you know, he's gone for all eternity. But I'll tell you biblically why, and feel free to disagree. We don't know. I don't know. know, But I'm just going to tell you
1: what I think. Judas dies before Jesus even goes to the cross. And Peter's letter says that Jesus, upon his death, went to preach the gospel to those
0: who were in prison. Souls of men, it says. So you have this, um, or spirits of men in prison, held in prison, and he picks the worst generation ever, which is the people in Noah's generation. Was Judas, let's say, people say, well, Judas went to hell. I'll go with that. But apparently, according to Peter, super controversial, and many people don't believe that he can be this good, but God apparently gave whoever was there an opportunity to hear the gospel, hear the message, and receive it. Okay, so would that have included Judas? Sure. Why? Because he died before Jesus even went to the cross. I doubt he gets down there and goes, You know, everybody, you guys get a chance to hear the gospel, except for you. Except (laughs) for you. Okay. And, And the picture I have is this ponder this with me. Judas fully knows what he's done, he fully is aware of what he's done, but
1: he doesn't believe he can be redeemed. So he ends his life so he never has to live another day. What happens? What happens if Judas suddenly finds himself face to face with Jesus? And Jesus, instead of saying, You no good, betraying,
0: backstabbing, what if Judas was fulfilling scripture? He was playing a role, a part. I mean the bible literally says he does what he does that the scriptures might be fulfilled did the guy even have a choice in the matter I mean you can you can break a calvinist's brain with this question you know so does he create Judas and that oh, that's it just want to let you guys know Judas was disposable to fulfill prophecy Or is it possible that Judas did what he did, so broken, doesn't feel his life is worth living, finds himself staring straight into the eyes, not of the God of wrath, but the God of love in Christ?
1: And what happens if Jesus looks at Judas and goes, welcome home, my son? Judas has no merit of his own to stand on at all.
0: And I pictured Judas being embraced by Jesus
1: and saying, you didn't have to take your life. You didn't have to end your life. You just didn't know how loved you are. You didn't know how valued you are. You didn't know that you had a seat at the table. Oh, by the way, the
0: table still exists. It was in your heart to betray me and you had a seat at the table. You went and did it and you still have a seat. At the table, is that even possible? If it is, if that's how good he
1: can be, I don't think there's anybody in heaven who would love Jesus as much as Judas. I mean,
0: picture that. Everybody else would be standing up, going, you know, I led, uh, you know, fifty thousand people to Jesus. I, you know, healed the sick, twenty thousand raised from raised from the dead. Judas is over here going, I got nothing. Yeah, I healed the sick, but I didn't know what I was doing. He gave me power. I had no idea what to do with it. I saw the dead raised. I saw that stuff happen. I saw people come to Jesus. I saw f- food multiplied at my hands. I did all this stuff. I was there with Jesus and I
1: squandered it all in a moment. I have nothing of my own merit to stand on. And yet, I'm one of the ones who was forgiven because I didn't know what I did. Father forgive them because of their ignorance they don't know what they do
0: Jesus Judas didn't know what he did and still never understood what he did
1: but I think at the at the table in the kingdom, I just think Judas has a chair I, I can't prove it but When I really, really think about the idea of, can he be that good? That's the thought that comes to mind. And I picture Judas sitting with Christ.
0: Just burying his head in his chest. On the throne. Because he knows
1: above everybody else that he doesn't deserve to be there. And yet, there he is. So. I feel like part of
0: these Tuesdays is to unveil some scripture, to constantly look at the new covenant. But at the same time, I am always getting challenged. As I look at the new covenant,
1: I'm always getting challenged at, can he be that good? And when I hear this and I I think about
0: this idea of that measure of goodness What happens in my heart is hope,
1: tremendous amount of hope. Because if that were possible to not because of our works, but because of
0: Christ alone to present us as a pure spotless bride. Then that would most certainly mean that the least among us who is worthy of the greatest rejection would be the recipient of a level of grace that they couldn't earn on their own. Especially if the last moment of their life, they were so completely filled with despair because they thought they threw it all away and did not know how good he really, really was. It's not that Jesus didn't tell him how good he was. It's not that Jesus didn't show him how good he was. It's that even in the telling and the showing, we can be so stuck on the old covenant stage that we don't believe. I had a guy one time in church say to me say to me, I, I I can't listen to you because you don't preach enough wrath. I totally believe in the wrath of God. I just don't think we're the object of it. Sin is. We're not the object of the wrath of God. Sin is the object of the wrath of God. But if people want to talk about the wrath, then let's go ahead and talk about the wrath. Let's talk about the wrath of humanity toward our creator. I mean, that's what the cross is. The cross is God, not the God of wrath being crucified by humanity. That, no. It's humanity's wrath crucifying the God of love. And in the process, Him redeeming us. Our single solitary contribution to our salvation is that we crucified our own Creator and He forgave us anyway. Oh my goodness, the gospel is such good news. Listen, I hope this encourages your heart today and maybe challenges some concepts that you had believed about the goodness of God. Just trust me with this reality that He's always going to be better than you think and you can't imagine Him better than he is take some time alone with the lord today and just say jesus reveal your goodness to me reveal your glory to me he wants to cover the earth with his glory he wants to touch you with the goodness of his glory he wants to put his glory on display through you listen we have some resources to help you walk with christ and in your relationship with the lord and you can get those at billvanderbush.com and here's a couple of really great bible studies for you on the homepage at Billvanderbush.com, you'll see there's a Hebrews study and an Ephesian study. Both of those studies are multiple hours long. They're a verse-by-verse study through two of the most important books in the Bible. My friend Don and I are going to want to just walk you through this entire section of scripture about how to live and walk in this new covenant union with Christ. And you can get both of those studies at a name your own price rate. That's right. No hindrance financially to you at all to be able to access this stuff. The only cost to you is the time it takes to invest in listening and studying and growing in grace. And I encourage you, this this is a time right now to lean in to an awareness of the presence of the Lord. And that is to remove all the distractions from you. Listen, I heard somebody say one time, when you know Jesus, he is all you want. And when you don't know him, you want everything else but him. But nothing else will satisfy quite like Jesus. We'll see you next time on the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. Grace and peace to you all.